Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Walk. Last week, the federal government advised Canadians against non-essential international travel in an effort to protect against the Omicron variant. While Ontario and Quebec announced thousands of new COVID-19 infections, on Friday, the federal government reintroduced the requirement for pre-arrival negative PCR COVID-19 tests for all travellers coming into Canada, regardless of trip duration. The rapid rise in cases and the changing health advice ahead of the holidays Holidays, though, as many Canadians frustrated and wondering what they should do with planned vacations and trips to see family. Joining us now to help us unwrap all of this and figure it out is the Minister of Transport, Omar Algabra. Minister, thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm good, Mercedes. Uh, thank you very much for having me on. You know, this is um, the news nobody wanted, but it's the news that we are faced with. And Canadians now have to make some pretty tough decisions. Uh, you are advising against international travel. A lot of folks have vacations booked. They feel they followed all the rules. They have waited. Uh, they are questioning why they should not travel abroad if Omicron is already here. Mercedes, believe me, I get no satisfaction, nor do I get any joy out of this. Um, but what we are witnessing is this new variant that is rapidly transmitting um, among um, individuals at a rate that we had never seen before. And um, we really decided to take the step to advise all Canadians to postpone their non-essential travel in order to protect them, to protect them first from contact uh, contracting uh, this variant or COVID, but also to protect them against any sudden changes of uh, border measures, either in Canada or around the world, where we don't want to see any Canadian get stuck or, or having to deal with any symptoms abroad. Uh, so it, it's really based on the information that we have, and it's out of prudence and, uh, uh, and, and, and care, uh, care for Canadians that we're advising them against non-essential international travel. When you mentioned the potentially changing border measures, a lot of folks thought last week when you were announcing some of those changes that it might include quarantines again. Is that a possibility? I know it's a factor a lot of people are trying to calculate into their decision on what to do. Could you be reintroducing a quarantine for people returning to Canada? Mercedes, let me uh, say it again. We are always assessing and monitoring the situation, but we're also consulting medical health, uh, public health experts and, and dissecting the information that we get. And we will not hesitate if the evidence uh, proves that we need additional measures. Uh, currently, we have some of the toughest now border measures, uh, but if we need to add another layer of protection, uh, because that's the advice we receive, we will not hesitate to do so. So it's really prudent for all Canadians to avoid non-essential travel. And by the way, we're not only talking about Canada's changing its own border measures. Uh, it, there is a high risk that other countries could change their own border measures. When it comes to the science, uh, listening to the doctors throughout this week here in Ottawa, they've been saying their primary concern is actually community spread in Canada. It's, it's not international travel. A lot of scientists say travel bans don't work. It's already here. It's too late. So what is the science behind your decision to bring in these travel measures if the real issue is community spread? Uh, 
First of all, let me uh, say you're right. Uh, the community transmission is where most of the transmission occurs, and it's really important for Canadians to follow local public health advice to get vaccinated, uh, to avoid large gatherings where potential spread could occur. The travel measures are just an added measure. Again, the science behind it is that, which makes a lot of sense, is the less people have opportunity to interact with other people, the less risk they put themselves in. And if they are abroad, if they are internationally, uh, God forbid they contract uh, uh, COVID, uh, we're at a, at a disadvantage as a government or, uh, or as a public health uh, uh, system to offer services to Canadian citizens, but also they might be at risk of, of, of being stuck in that country, uh, there's also a risk of bringing the uh, virus back with them. So it's just a matter of probability. It's a matter of precaution. It's a matter of prudence. Um, we think it's best for Canadians to try to minimize as much interaction as possible. And also, by the way, other countries, we're not really sure about their public health measures. We're not even sure about their uh, uh, public health system. So it's, it's, it's out of precaution and out of prudence to protect the health and safety of all Canadians. I just want to play a clip from one of Canada's top doctors who our viewers will recognize on the advice that they're giving to politicians versus the advice that politicians are implementing. Take a listen to this. We recognize that there are other considerations in play as well beyond uh, just a strictly sort of technical public health advice that we may be giving to ministers sound a lot like politics, Minister. Some people are saying this is just political theater. Uh, what is strictly the advice that you're actually getting from the scientists based on what Dr. Nuge is saying there? I think Dr. Nuge was talking about operational considerations. Uh, uh, believe me, there is no political gain for me to stand before you here and before the Canadian public just around Christmas to say, uh, please cancel all your travel plans. I don't see this as a political uh, uh, theater at all. This is necessary. We are being honest with Canadians. We're being candid with Canadians based on the information that we have, based on the advice that we receive. Yes, there are operational considerations and how we implement advice, uh, how quickly can we ramp up certain measures. But at the end of the day, it's really all these precautions and all these measures are done to protect the health and safety of Canadians. And as I said, I don't think uh, I wish I didn't have to do this. I wish none of us had to uh, go through this, but it is really a necessary uh, advice and a, and a necessary measure to protect everyone. I do want to ask you about testing at airports and land borders. It's something you and I talked about a couple of weeks ago when you were on the show. You had said that you expected the, the testing at airports to basically be ramped up that weekend. It's still not all the way up. Um, there's still not the testing at land borders of people crossing back in from the United States. If the science is there to support that testing and to mandate it, why has your government not gotten fully up to speed yet? And why is it not consistent for every person coming across from the United States and the land border? Mercedes, two weeks ago when I uh, discussed this with you, I told you that uh, it's going to take uh, some uh, uh, days to ramp up our effort. We're actually doing really well with testing uh, travelers coming from outside the United States. Uh, Minister Duplo on Friday said 
that we have now we are now testing 21,000 daily travelers out of 23. Just two weeks ago, we were at our uh, around testing 11,000. So we've more than doubled the numbers. We're almost now testing everyone. When it comes to the uh, U.S. borders, we continue to have these random. Uh, mandatory testing that roughly tests about 15 to 20 percent of but incoming why travelers. It, why isn't it 100 percent, though? I mean, it, what what's the science that the risk is lower for someone driving across the border than someone flying across the border? We look, we uh, uh, if you recall, we talked about the U.S. and to this day, we are still have not uh, included uh, testing all travelers coming from the U.S. based on the information that we have. So we we are monitoring the situation in the United States. We are very familiar with the public health measures that are ongoing in the United States. Our public health experts are in daily discussions or regular discussions with American public health experts. So we're monitoring the situation closely with the United States. There are tests that are taking place at the border, both land and air who are coming from uh, from the United States. Uh, so we are doing everything we can. And if there are additional uh, needs to change these uh, measures, we will do so. Do you have a date on when everyone will be tested? Uh, we're almost there. So I, I am hoping that in the coming days, we will be at 100%, but we're almost at 100% as we speak. Okay, Minister, I'm sure we'll be checking back with you again on those numbers in a few weeks. Thank you so much for joining us today and happy holidays. Thank you, Mercedes. Uh, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays to you and your viewers. I was uh, absolutely very touched by the, the apology itself. I had not uh, forecasted how much uh, this would be affecting me as, as, a, as a military member and as a member of, of this, this defense team. That was the military's chief of professional conduct and culture, Lieutenant General Jenny Carignan, reflecting on the historic apology delivered last week to survivors of military sexual misconduct. Carignan's position was created last spring to lead cultural reform within the Canadian Armed Forces in response to the sexual misconduct crisis. The general says military members are hungry for change, but that it could take as long as five years or maybe even longer in a campaign to create that change. Joining us now is Lieutenant General Jenny Carignan here in studio. Thank you so much. It's nice to see you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You have a very difficult task ahead of you, and you are one of the highest ranking women in the Canadian Armed Forces. Obviously, you've come up through this system. What was your experience like personally, and were you surprised by this story when it broke? Well, I think um, when you have spent um, most of your adult life in the military, you go through a lot of different changes over time and uh, you evolve and you learn. Uh, so, of course, um, there was a momentum that was in place for a few years now that, that brought us to where we are today. And um, with um, with the uh, with the report coming out from Madame Deschamps in 2014, and in the actions taken after that, that allow us to learn a lot. But we could see that we had not gotten to the heart of the problem. So I think uh, right now we have this opportunity to conduct um, a lot of changes that is is going to take us even further as an institution. And I have to say, although it's a big task, I'm not alone to do that. 
Um, we are mobilized um, all around this issue, and I feel that I am very much supported by all of my colleagues who are leading the effort in many other, in many other areas within defense. In their role, they are taking into account culture. So although I have culture in my title, it's, it's, a, it's a defense team um, effort, and I'm not alone in doing that. You're a lieutenant general. That's a, a three-star in the U.S., a three-leaf here in Canada. It's a very powerful position. It's the same rank as the person who commands the Army or the Navy or the Air Force. They have a lot of people working for them. How many people do you have working for you on this change in your office? Well, I, I lost count, uh, but uh, we are consolidating uh, currently a lot of uh, the various tools that have been working culture in different areas within defense. So I think we want to bring everybody that works the culture piece, and some of them have for a few years, under the same roof, uh, so that we can... Um, again, gain momentum and mobilize around, around culture. Do you think you have uh, more, the enough resources to do that? I mean, if you're talking about the Army, the Navy, it's, it's thousands and thousands of people. I know your office doesn't have that many, uh, but do you think that you're being given sufficient resources to achieve what is a very, very large mandate? So uh, it, right now we are growing. So, and there's two things about resource. One is, is yes, resource, material and, and personnel, but there's also a smart way to do business where in, in exchange with the various groups, they have their own role in adjusting culture. And then the role of monitoring, the role of making sure that the changes are being done, making sure that we are measuring uh, the progress, this is kind of where we are, uh, as well as enabling we are enabling our other uh, colleagues in, in, their, in their work in changing culture. So this is kind of the area where we are. So yes, it's about resources, um, but it's also about working smartly. The military has talked before about change. Uh, you and I both remember 2015. We remember back before that, McLean's first book broke the story it, it, for, since the 90s. This is being discussed. I remember when we were talking about the story internally, our national anchor, Donna Friesen, said, how many times have we heard this story? What's different this time in terms of the Canadian Armed Forces being committed to change? Do you think this is actually the time you get the tectonic shift? What is different this time is I this time we are going at the heart of the issue. So we have been looking at symptoms historically, um, but what we have learned in the past six years um, is that we had not gotten to the heart of the, of the problem. So what problem are we trying to solve is, is the key piece. Uh, what is the environment uh, that allows uh, all range of misconduct to take place, what are the factors that allows that to do this, and this is where we are going to be intervening on the processes, on the tangible processes that influences culture. Um, and it's going to be done in constant consultations with our external stakeholders who care about uh, defense and also with our internal networks who are um, plugged in uh, to the dynamics on the floor and making sure that we constantly adjust to, to the environment. It sounds good. It sounds like a lot of buzzwords too. So mm -hmm. what does it mean 
in practicality how you execute this. I mean, one of the things I know you've talked about is leadership. This sexual misconduct scandal addressed a lot of the leadership in the Canadian Armed Forces. It's become a big, big issue. You're talking about selecting leaders differently. How does something practical like that play out so you are selecting the right people to lead the organization? So it's, it's looking at uh, the development of leaders and how we develop leaders and what what character do we reward? So historically, we have rewarded the same type of character. Now we have to look at this differently. So uh, revisiting what uh, character we want to see in leaders and develop the tools and equip our leaders to develop the character that we're looking for. Um, so it's more empathy. It's more uh, human-centric. It's how to have difficult conversations. How do we work uh, through culture and diversity? Because leading a diverse team is a challenge, and it's different than leading people who all look like you. Uh, so we know that these tools do exist. Um, we just have to make them work together to enable our leaders to get to get there. Does that mean, are you doing psychology tests? Do you talk to their subordinates? I mean, how do you determine what people are really like? Because I'd imagine um, if I'm, I don't know, a captain or a major and I'm sitting with a lieutenant general like you, I may present a very different image than I'm presenting when I'm in command. Absolutely. And it's going to be a variety of different, it's going to be a multifaceted, multi-pronged approach. So it's going to be many things at the same time. Not only do we need uh, to uh, look at how we select, how we promote. So this is a systemic um, processes, uh, but how how do we evaluate um, is, is also a key piece. So the selection behind uh, the leaders is, is, is a combination of, uh, it could be 360 tests, it could be psychometric, uh, psychometric tests, it could be, um, this, these tools that could enable us to, to have a different pictures of our leaders before we make a selection. What would you say to young men and women who are thinking about joining the Canadian Armed Forces, but they're worried about it after what they've seen in the news? I think they will have to make uh, the choice for themselves. I think they have to um, look at uh, the type of mission that the forces uh, deliver. Um, the honorable cause that the military is serving um, and, and it's about creating this defense for Canadians. So I think um, this is a choice that they will have to make for themselves. Um, we have a, a range of, of persons in the military now that can provide feedback on their own experiences as well. Uh, but in the end, it's always a personal choice. General Carignan, thank you so much for joining us today and good luck with your mission ahead. Thank you very much. Welcome back. As many of us plan for some time off over the holidays, we wanted to share with you our plans for two special editions of the West Block. Starting next week, Sunday, December 26th, tune in for a special full-length interview with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. We'll talk about the pandemic, relations with China, and his handling of the military sexual misconduct crisis. The Prime Minister now says he wish he'd done more. When the very top levels of the military are insisting that there is no problem, um, 
it is a challenge for any government to say, uh, okay, you're wrong, we're going to get rid of all of you, we're going to bring in an entirely new system. And then for the first show of 2022, we have another special full-length interview with a very special guest on the show. Here's a preview. The discovery of unmarked graves at a former residential school in the BC interior led to a countrywide awakening. When the Prime Minister announced Canada's new Governor-General last summer, many saw it as a significant step forward on the path to reconciliation. An Indigenous woman as the Queen's representative in Canada. On this special edition of the West Block, we reflect on Canada's difficult past and the promise of a better future, one-on-one -on -one with Canada's 30th Governor-General, Mary Simon. We hope you'll tune in for that very special edition of the show on Sunday, January 2nd. Before we go today, I would like to take this opportunity to say a huge thank you to the small but mighty Ottawa Bureau team who helped put the show together each week. The West Block would not get to air without their big brains, hard work and team spirit. Thank you to the show's wonderful and talented show producer, Bernadette Vanesta. Thank you, David Baxter, who helps us produce the show each week. Thank you to our incredibly talented editors, Frank Bolt, Diana Hagermeyer, and David Delahar, and camera operator, Luigi Delapenta. And to the rest of the Ottawa Bureau who always pitch in, Kaz, Steve Alexander, and Mike Hazlitt. This year, investigative producer Marc-Andre Cossette, national producer Crystal Ogue, and online reporter Amanda Connolly poured their hearts and souls into the groundbreaking military sexual misconduct stories that you saw on this show. Thank you. Thank you to our online writer, Rachel Gilmore, and to our engineers, Tony Pang and Peter Picconi. A very special thank you to Ottawa Bureau Manager, Brian Mullen, who pulls off miracles every single week. And of course, to our guest hosts, Abigail Beeman and Michael Couture, as well as Chief Political Correspondent, David Aiken, and our Bureau Administrator, JL. A huge thank you as well to our control room team, who have to put up with me every week, all the way from Edmonton. From all of us to all of you, happy holidays 